From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Billionaire philanthropist and activist Tom Steyer wants to be president, but he trails other Democrats. In Denver over the weekend, he told us climate change is his top issue. I view myself as a classic American. I grew up in a fossil fuel economy and participated in it. And then I realized, oh my goodness, we can't keep doing this. We need to make a change. And that's exactly what I'm asking every American to do. Steyer takes your Twitter questions, plus what he meant when he told Iowa voters, I don't want to be president. Then, remembering some of the remarkable Coloradans we lost in 2019, like Marie Greenwood, Denver's first tenured black teacher, and music icon Ginger Baker. Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tom Steyer says he's a self-made billionaire. Now he wants to make himself into a winning presidential candidate. But he's hardly a frontrunner. The California Democrat was in Denver over the weekend, his second visit to Colorado since announcing he'd seek his party's nomination. Steyer sat down to take some of my questions and some of yours via Twitter. Mr. Steyer, thank you for being with us. Ryan, please call me Tom. All right, Tom, you lay out what you call a 21st century Bill of Rights. This is a new set of five rights, including the right to universal health care, clean air, clean water, the right to a living wage. Is this a literal Bill of Rights that you'd want to see ratified and put into the U.S. Constitution? It is. Look, these are actual rights that I believe Americans have right now. I don't believe they're being observed. And so do I think these are things that absolutely should be codified? Yes, that Americans have a right to affordable health care. Yeah, I think in the 21st century, that's a right for every American. In there is the right to a quality public education, starting with pre-K and going all the way. Do I believe that that's a right for an American citizen? Yes, I do. Do I believe that they're getting that? No, I don't. Ratification, of course, would require a level of bipartisanship. Uh, that seems positively foreign these days. Is this a reasonable policy? Well, I think Republican voters, as well as Democratic voters, actually want affordable health care. I think Republican voters, as well as Democratic voters, actually want their kids to be well-educated in the public schools. I think Republican voters don't want to be poisoned when they breathe or drink water that comes out of the tap. And I think Republican voters want a living wage. Look, we have a broken government, Ryan. I think everybody in the United States, voters of both parties, think this government has been purchased by corporations and doesn't serve them. And I think people across the country know it, are upset about it, but don't know what to do about it. Yeah, this is an idea central to your campaign, that people, not corporations, should be in charge of the democracy. Give me a concrete example where you see undue corporate influence and how you would address (laughs) it if you were elected president. Okay. That makes you laugh, It makes me laugh because there's so many, Ryan, but I'll just start with climate. You know, we have a climate crisis. There aren't two arguments about this. And yet, not everyone embraces the idea that there's a climate crisis. Well, first of all, I think I'm the only candidate of either party who has made climate his or her number one priority. And so I have literally talked to national journalists who've said to me, do you really believe that the oil companies will let you do anything on climate? 
And I said to them, do you really believe that we're going to let the world go up in smoke to protect the profits of oil companies? And they said, you're naive to think that the people can overcome the oil companies politically. Now, if that isn't corporations buying the government, I don't know what is. So give me the how. How do you reduce the influence of oil companies, if that's your goal? Well, the first thing we do is we talk about it in this campaign and we get the people of the United States to agree publicly and at the ballot box that this is the issue that we need to take back our government. Then once we're in, the first thing that a president can do is get the federal election commission, which is completely more abundant, doesn't work at all, reconstitute it and insist that we have start with transparency in elections, in money and politics, and put in completely different penalties for people who break those rules because those rules are being broken. Now, some of this... But the last thing is I'm talking about term limits. You know, I'm talking about term limits in Congress of 12 years for Congress people and senators because if we're going to get bold change, then we need new people, different people in charge. I'm talking about direct democracy, which you have in Colorado, which we have in California. You're talking about direct ballot access for issues, referenda, for instance. Yes, national referenda. In the last debate, you made it clear that if elected president, you would declare climate change a national emergency on day one. Practically, what does that mean? Who has to stop doing what on day two? Well, what it means is the president can put in rules and regulations about how energy is going to be generated, you know, the equivalent of renewable portfolio standards. Which Colorado has. Right. But, you know, that's very much state by state. The president can put in rules about building codes. The president can put in rules about what kind of cars are produced in the United States of America, that miles per gallon averages. So in effect, we can start putting in schedules for the transition to clean energy at a rate in which we can actually get the changes that we need. And you do this through executive orders? It doesn't sound like you have a lot of buy-in from Congress in this model. No, I would also ask Congress to pass some version, and I have a version that's on my website, of the Green New Deal. Mine is very different from the way that Bernie Sanders, for instance, describes it. But I have what I believe is the most effective, impactful version of the Green New Deal. But to be fair, Ryan, Congress has never passed any climate legislation, ever. And my point is, first of all, I would declare a state of emergency on day one because it is an emergency. And we have to, but can I finish? Sure. Secondly, everything I've done in the last 12 years about climate has started with environmental justice has started with the communities where it is unsafe to breathe the air, where it is unsafe to drink the water when it comes out of the tap. Those are overwhelmingly black and brown communities. Let's talk about those who perhaps work in the coal industry Mm -hmm. or in Colorado, oil and gas. You know, those aren't just the folks who are doing drilling and driving trucks, but those are the attorneys and the Mm -hmm. accountants. Talk to them about this transition. Okay, let me start with the idea that we are going to hold the people in the fossil fuel industries, which are not going to go away on day one. You know, this is a 20 to 25 year change, but we're going to hold them harmless as to wages, healthcare, and retirement. My plan puts aside $50 billion for the people in those industries to make sure that we are not solving this problem 
on the backs of working Americans who are just doing jobs. Where's that money coming from? That has to be appropriated by Congress. We're also going to create over four and a half million jobs per year, rebuilding America in a sustainable fashion, good paying union jobs. And we're going to put the people in the declining industries at the front of the line to get those jobs. And this is going to happen all across America. The New York Times has called you one of the most influential environmentalists in the U.S. Uh, You once vowed to spend $100 million to defeat candidates who don't back policies to fight climate change. Uh, But during the fifth Democratic debate, Vice President Joe Biden came at you with this claim in regards to the hedge fund you created and its investments in coal. My friend was producing more coal mines and produced more coal around the world, according to the press, than all of Great Britain produces. Now, he's I, I, I welcome him back into the fold here and he's been there for a long while. But the idea that we talk about where we started and how we are, let's get this straight. The essence of what Vice President Biden is saying is true, that the funds investments in these coal plants led to a dramatic increase in production, adding up to more than what Great Britain consumes annually. You've said that this is partly why you left the firm in 2012, because it conflicted with your values. Do you regret the history? And is is it something you feel you're trying to make right? Look, we invested in every part of the American economy. And so we invested in fossil fuels. This was not a fossil fuel fund. We invested in fossil fuels less than the percentage of the economy. But I came to understand that actually the world that we all grew up in, Ryan, was a fossil fuel-driven world and that it had an unintended consequence of climate change. And I realized that about 12 years ago. I divested from fossil fuels. I took the giving pledge to give more than half my wealth away while I'm alive to good causes. And I've been organizing against climate for the last 12 years. So I'm asking Americans, I view myself as a classic American. I grew up in a fossil fuel economy and participated in it. And then I realized, oh my goodness, we can't keep doing this. We need to make a change. And that's exactly what I'm asking every American to do. Do I wish that I'd figured it out earlier? Sure I do. Your polling numbers have stayed in the single digits. Uh, you did make it onto the last debate stage. When, when I solicited questions for you on Twitter, uh, a theme emerged. Folks wondering why you're in the race spending $83 million on campaign ads. This is according to a recent political report. When you could direct that money to Democratic candidates up and down the ballot who have broader support. Um, Tom Steyer, differently put, people seem to want your money more than your candidacy. What would you tell them? I'd say that actually, if you look at the four early primary states, I've done nothing but go up ever since I started. I had some friends who were in Iowa over the holidays. They said that uh, commercials were almost exclusively Tom Steyer ads. Well, a lot of Tom Steyer ads. But I'm just saying, so if you actually think about this, this isn't a national election. This is a series of state elections. And they start with those four early primary states, which is really what's going to set the tone for what happens after that. And in those states, actually, I'm doing really well. And it continues to grow. The other thing I'd say is this. I continue to support all the grassroots stuff I've been doing. So if people are worried, this isn't a question of either or. I'm doing both. You you mentioned the giving pledge earlier. Mm-hmm. You and your wife signed a pledge to give half of your fortune away bef- before you die, during your lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me, you know, money is power. Money is influence. Money can help pay for the kinds of changes you want to see in the world. What is it about the presidency you desire 
that the, the power and the influence and, and the money you have right now don't afford you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Listen, you're asking me, why am I running? And the answer is because someone has got to tell the truth to the American people on fundamental questions. Look, are, are you saying no other Democrat is doing that? Yes. That's why I'm running. If someone else were saying what I'd saying, I wouldn't be running. And that's why I got in the race. I mean, some of your messages aren't dissimilar from other Democrats in the race. There literally is no other Democrat who will say that climate is his or her number one priority. There's no other Democrat really that is going to deal with this on an emergency basis at home and abroad. I mean, I talked to Bernie Sanders. There is no doubt climate change is a huge part of his platform. There is no doubt that it is a huge part of his platform. It is also true that it is not his number one priority. And it is also true that he would have to pass his program, the Green New Deal, through Congress. And if you remember Barack Obama, if it is not your number one priority, it may not get done. It didn't get done for Barack. His number one priority was the Affordable Care Act. Spent two years on it. We never got any climate legislation. He did a lot of stuff in his second term on climate. But if it isn't number one, there's a very good chance it won't get done. But the other point is this. This is a timing question when we look at climate. It's not just a question of are we going to do it. It's also a question of when are we going to do it. There is a clock here that is running. This is not a stable situation. This is a situation that gets worse every day. In November in Iowa, you made headlines with uh, this comment. I know this is going to sound a little strange, Kenna. I don't want to be president, but I do want to do things as president. You know, it occurs to me that primary season is the ultimate job interview. And if I were in the position to hire someone and the job candidate said, I don't want this position, I just want to do the things this position does, like that would give me pause as an interviewer. What if you heard that from an employee you were hiring? I don't really want this job, but I want the things the job does. Well, I I must have said it poorly then. Look, there are people who want to be things and there are people who want to do things. I want to do things. I, I think if you look, for instance, at George W. Bush, he wanted to be president. He thought that being president was a success. Actually, it was a terrible failure. In my mind, he was a totally failed president. From his standpoint, he was president. My point is being president That's not a success. Being a successful president who accomplishes important things, that's success. Uh, Another question from Twitter. So yes, I would definitely hire that person because I don't want someone who's a a placeholder. I want someone who has a reason to do it and is trying to accomplish things. Another question from Twitter. James Constis asks, how does Tom Steyer plan to convince Trump Democrats in swing states to vote for him? You have no doubt made climate a key part of this conversation and and of your campaign, of course, modifying James's question just a bit. Is that the issue that will bring Democrats to the White House? Look, I think for everybody who's running, they're going to have to take on Mr. Trump on the economy, including me. We know how Mr. Trump's going to run because he said it. He basically said to a group of Americans, I don't like you. You don't like me. But you're all going to vote for me because if the Democrats get in, they're going to blow up the economy in 15 minutes. So what, what can I do that's com- different from everybody else? Look, I started a business and ran it for 27 years and turned it from an absolute nothing into a big multi-billion dollar international business. I can beat Mr. Trump on the economy. I can talk not just about economic justice, about redirecting money. I can also talk about um, prosperity, economic prosperity, growth. 
what we can do to actually create long-term growth and prosperity for people across the spectrum. Which you see is intimately linked to the transition of the energy in this country, I gather. I do, but it's much more than that. I mean, I, Give I, me look, one other example of what it is. In my mind, the way that we should think about growth and prosperity is capability of the American people, investing in the American people. We should stop thinking about education as something that's a cost and start thinking about how do we have the most productive people in the world because that's how we'll have the most prosperity. We should be sitting here thinking about how does America invest in the American people so they are successful because that's what makes the country successful. We have, I have a completely different attitude about how to create growth and prosperity long-term as opposed to short-term. And I think this whole idea that the way to do it, which is what we've done for 40 years, which is to cut taxes on the richest Americans and the biggest corporations and watch GDP grow, has been a total failure because for 90% of Americans, they haven't participated in that growth. Just looking at GDP doesn't work for me at all. Just looking at unemployment rates doesn't work for me at all. If you can't live on the jobs that you have, that the economy produces. We're looking at a country, I know I'm in Denver, Colorado. There's a huge question about gentrification and can you afford to live in Denver, Colorado? Or any of the communities around it. They used to no, be but affordable Ryan, too. It's a completely different way of thinking. Uh, what about mobility? You know, what is the ability for someone who grows up in a low-income family to move out of that income bracket? Really low in the United States of America, by the way. I don't know if you've checked. But mobility has basically stopped. So when I think about success in America, I think about it completely differently. I know Mr. Trump. He's full of baloney on this. I know in Colorado, half the school districts have four-day weeks because they can't afford to have five-day weeks. That is not how you create the most productive people in the world. And that's exactly who we need to be. Critics have said that you're trying to buy your way into the White House, and a recent AP report adds some fuel to that fire. It found that one of your top aides offered money to politicians in Iowa in exchange for their endorsements of you. Uh, that's not illegal, by the way, if it's you know properly reported. Given that you're here in part to announce an endorsement from a longtime solar industry executive, I just want to know if your campaign is doing any exchanges of money for endorsements. Well, just to be clear, Ryan, that was an unauthorized fact, and he left the campaign that day. So, When you say he left the campaign, did you fire him? He left. It was, it, look, it, when you run an organization, it's important that you stand by your values. So that was reported. Nothing ever changed hands. It was unauthorized, and he left the campaign that day. So, in fact, that's exactly what a high-integrity organization does. When unauthorized things happen, I mean, you're reporting as if it happened and was authorized. Neither is true. And so, in fact, what happened was we found out about it, and he left. Finally, from Twitter, if you're not the Democratic nominee, will you financially back who is? Look, I've said under all circumstances, I'm a Democrat. I'm, who, everybody on the stage, the first thing I said in the first debate I was in is that everyone on the stage is 100 times more competent, more honest, and more prepared than Mr. Trump. So, of course, I'm going to back the Democrat. Thanks for being with us, Tom Steyer. Ryan, it's a pleasure to see you. Democratic presidential candidate Tom Steyer spoke with us as he campaigned in Denver last weekend.
For the rest of the show, we're going to remember some of the remarkable Coloradans who passed away in 2019, among them a former Denver Poet Laureate and award-winning author. Chris Rancic was 57 and had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He died in November. We spoke with Rancic several times over the years. He reflected on one of his works, Poem for a Cold Walk Home, set in winter, about cherished moments from his childhood in New York. I wrote that poem. It's largely autobiographical. As a boy, I had a paper route, and I would finish that paper route, and I would catch a creek that ran nearby, and I, I carry my hockey skates with me. And I just slipped those on, and I would skate home rather than walk home. It was a little longer, but, but it sure was fun. Rivers weren't the only place Rancic skated. There was a pond not far from my house, uh, probably a quarter mile away, and I would walk through the woods to get to it. And this place was called Hoops Park. And we skated there. We would take shovels over and, and clear off the snow. And we would skate there and play pond hockey. One place where I could be better than my older brothers, I was a better skater than them, so I could steal my older brother's hat and skate away, and he would just have to chase me. And uh, I just have a lot of fond memories with the winter season and, uh, and family, brothers, uh, you know, friends playing outdoors. Rancic later moved to Colorado, where he taught English and creative writing for decades. I just always have felt that writing was an integral part of paying attention to the world turning experience into language, and then being able to offer it to other people, uh, very important. Perhaps the best way to put this is that you're not the most important thing, uh, that the world around you is what you're graphing, not the self. In words that now seem prophetic, Rancic shared how some of his winter writings touch on the concept of death. One of the things the seasons do for us is, probably overstating it here, but it makes it okay, in a sense. If you get through winter, I think you experience the the little death of the landscape. And you recognize that death is absolutely a niche on the cycle and everything's going through it. So at least for me anyway, um, winter has a solemnity to it, but no fear. That is Chris Rancic, Denver's Poet Laureate from 2006 to 2010. He died in November at age 57. And our remembrances continue in the next half hour. They're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. Oh, I wish I had a river I could skate away on. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwill, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're taking time to reflect on some of the exceptional people Colorado lost in 2019. Among them, Marie Greenwood. She was Denver's first tenured black teacher, a woman who spent decades fighting segregation. An elementary school is named after her. Greenwood died in September, just shy of her 107th birthday. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brandine profiled Greenwood when she turned 105. And uh, Jenny, what are your memories of her and what she brought to teaching? 
What stood out the most was her unflappable optimism. I mean, there was no blaming, no finger pointing, no complaining. And it was always this motto that she lived by. And she told it to me. She said, aim high, because if you reach for the stars, at least you'll hit the treetops. And she was (laughs) guided by aphorisms like this. Are there stories about Marie Greenwood that uh, you can share from maybe people you've spoken with in your role as education reporter? Yeah, everyone I met uh, who talked about her was struck by how down to earth and how funny she was and how spontaneous. And even at her 105th birthday luncheon, which I attended, there was a break in a song that children were singing to her. And she suddenly spontaneously sang a chorus and she was wearing a feather boa and sunglasses that the kids gave her. And I remember thinking, may we all wear feather boas and sunglasses on our 105th birthday. (laughs) So just I was really amazed by how spontaneous she was at such an old age. Well, it makes me think I should get my feather boa soon in case I don't make it to 105. Uh, Well, uh, this story that we mentioned you did on Greenwood, visiting her at the first school she attended as a child in Denver, Maury Middle School. Let's listen. When Marie Greenwood rolls into the school, the principal greets her with a joke. You're returning a library book today for us? Is that, that would be a pretty hefty fine. I was born in 1912, so all you gotta do is make this subtraction. With eyes bright and expressive, her words sharp, witty, and warm. Her son James rolls Greenwood into the old Maury gym, and her face lights up. These are no slow cranking gears of memory. Greenwood goes back instantly, 92 years ago. A young girl in a gym outfit from 1925. A wool skirt, leggings, a white shirt and tie. We had ropes that came down, and boy, I could really climb those ropes faster than anybody. For one of the first times in my life, this was the one place where I felt absolutely free. In the classrooms, it was another story because there was that feeling of discrimination. But when I was here, that was it. Greenwood's world opened up in sports. She taught herself how to swim from library books and practice breathing underwater in the sink at home. Maury School had a pool. With all these girls wanting me to do everything and wanting me to swim with them, that was great. And then the principal let me know. She couldn't swim in the pool because she was black. She says the incident spurred her on. It got me out of some of that shyness and made me say, I'm going to prove that I can be the best. And from then on, that's what I did. We head into the auditorium. Greenwood doesn't remember it being this massive. And look, there's a ramp over there. Oh, this is, mm mm-hmm. Boy, I'm glad to see this. Good gravy. It was in this auditorium she met a group of black girls, some she stayed friends with for 70 years. Greenwood also reminisces about discriminatory behavior from a social studies teacher who liked to embarrass her when she didn't know an answer and never called on her when she did. Greenwood outsmarted her. I could look stupid as could be, knew the answer. She'd call on me, bingo. Or I could wave my hand, you know, had no idea what was going on. And then the teacher would ignore her, letting Greenwood save face. But the centenarian fondly remembers others, like the math teacher who helped her after school until finally... I got it. Greenwood began excelling. The teacher gave her a compliment she remembers to this day. He told me I had a mathematical mind. And you know what, she says? He was right. I'm still doing my own finances. (laughs) She's lived by all kinds of aphorisms. If you 
aim for the stars, you're at least you're going to hit the treetop. As a teenager, the stars were still a long way off. She wasn't allowed to play sports or join clubs. A school administrator told her not to bother with college because she'd be cleaning houses. Greenwood replied she was going to college. Then she went into the bathroom and cried. I pounded on the wall and I said, I am, I'm going to show them. And she did. Fortunately, her family moved, and she enrolled in West High, where the principal didn't tolerate discrimination. That was my salvation. She graduated third in her class, won a scholarship, and went on to teacher's college. In 1935, Denver Public Schools hired her as a first-grade teacher. Three years later, she was the first teacher of color to get tenure. I had two goals, keep that job and keep the door open for others to come in. She later became the first black teacher in an all-white school, raised a family, skied a lot, and camped all over the West. But Greenwood calls teaching the love of her life. And it's a love she likes to talk about. Well, you see, you get me wound up. I'm like the Energizer bunny. I just go on and on and on and on and on. (laughs) I can't just answer your question and quit. (laughs) But Marie Greenwood also has things to do, crossword puzzles and Jeopardy games, and children to sing with at a pre-birthday celebration. I'm Jenny Brandine, Colorado Public Radio News. If black people would talk to white people, we would be better people all around. Marie Greenwood, the first black tenured teacher in Denver, died in September at age 106. She's featured in a show called Women Work Justice at the Center for Colorado Women's History, which is based at the Byers-Evans House in Denver. The show runs through March. Now, the actress who brought the gum-chewing character Violet Beauregard to life. Violet, you're turning violet, Violet! What are you talking about? I told you I hadn't got it quite right yet. You can say that again. Look what it's done to my kid! Denise Nickerson, best known for her iconic role in the classic film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory there. She also died in September. She was 62. Nickerson lived in Denver, and we spoke in 2016 about her memories making the classic film alongside Gene Wilder. None of us were allowed to see the chocolate room until Gene opened the door. And if you recall, we were at the top of like three sets of stairs, and that room was self-contained in one soundstage. The river, the Wonkatania, the water, the chocolate waterfall, Mm. um, the Oompa Loompas, all of the trees with the candies. It was all one building. It was on screen when you see it on the big screen. It'll never look as good as it did to me that day. Mm. I was just astonished at what they had created. I mean, this is 1970 when we filmed this, so we didn't have any of the CGI technology, none of that. Um, But what they created was unbelievable. It just, it was unbelievable. And they wanted to, I guess, capture your true surprise as they opened the door. They did. And there was I be, no no acting in me. All of us were amazed. It was the most beautiful thing in the world. I mean, really, it was like Disneyland. 
And then when we're running through and Gene is kicking the, the ball and singing that gorgeous song. What do you remember about the first time you met Gene Wilder? Because it, it was before that big chocolate fountain scene, right? It was. The first day that we, I met him was the, when we were at the factory and waiting for him to come out of the building. And we were sitting on the bleachers. Hmm. And so he comes out in a gorgeous outfit and then does the, the somersault. And that's the first time I met him. And then we meet at the gate and we all shake hands with him. And then we walk to that next doorway to go into the factory. Um, so are you saying are him. you saying the first time you met him, all of that was being filmed? Uh, 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 again, yes. trying to get your, your true initial reaction? Yes. Wow. Um, Mel Stewart, who was the director, who unfortunately passed a couple of years ago, um, had the idea that he wanted this to be timeless. He didn't want our clothes to be dated. That's why they're so yucky looking. Um, And uh, he didn't want any landmarks that would date the movie. And so that's why it was done in Germany. And you can't really tell where it was shot. You know, you you, you don't know. Hmm. Um, But it was done in Germany, south of Germany, in Bavaria. And what an experience. Um, I was there for six weeks. Depending upon your demise was how long you have to stay. That's right, because, uh, of course, along the way, uh, some not-so-good things happen to the children who won't won't inherit the chocolate family. Good kids and bad things happen to bad kids. I have one question about the chocolate river you mentioned. Did it taste like chocolate? Do you really want the truth? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay, sometimes when we start telling people the truth, it kind of breaks their image, their memory. Uh Um, It was actually colored water, and it was stagnant for eight, ten weeks. Oh, oh. Oh, my Lord. It smelled terrible. And so the chocolate room... Actually, the film was actually filmed pretty well chronologically. Mm-hmm. And thank God we didn't do that chocolate room at the end because it was wholly smelly in there. Um, and when Michael Bolner, who played Augustus Gloop, had to fall into the river, people asked him, was it really chocolate? And he says, no, nah, it was cold and dirty water. Gross. <laughs> He did not speak any English, only the lines that he says in the movie. Again, and going for the authentic, the I suppose. Um, as, as we mentioned, Violet Beauregard, your character was known for her gum-chewing habit. Here it is, golden ticket number three, and it's all mine. Tell us how it happened, Violet. Well, I'm a gum-chewer normally, but when I heard about these ticket things of Wonka's, I laid off the gum and switched to candy bars instead. Now, of course, I'm right back on gum. I chew it all day, except at mealtimes when I stick it behind my ear. Violet. Call it, Mother. (laughs) Now, this piece of gum here is one that I've been chewing on for three months solid, and that's a world record. How much gum did you chew while filming? I have no clue. Hundreds 
of pieces of gum. The interesting thing is I had just finished TV, one of the first movie of the week TV show movies um, with Lee, Lee Grant and Gig Young. Oh, yeah, Lee Grant. Out oh. in, yeah, it was out in the desert in Lancaster in California. And um, in that particular film, which took six, seven weeks to film, this girl blew bubbles throughout the entire movie. So she chewed gum the whole time. So I had seven weeks of chewing there. And I flew to New York and I had 39 hours. I took the summer clothes out, put the winter clothes in, got on the plane for Germany, and then chewed bazooka for another seven weeks. <laughs> this was so when I got back to New York City where I lived, yeah. I had 13 cavities. Oh, so it was... This was, was trier to trident. Yes, you know, this was not sugar-free. Sugar uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, and trident doesn't make the bubbles that Bazooka does. Of course, there's the classic scene where your character, Violet Beauregard, disregards Gene Wilder's warnings, Willy Wonka's warnings, and eats a piece of untested candy. Violet, you're turning violet, Violet! What are you talking about. I told you I hadn't got it quite right yet. You can say that again. Look what it's done to my kid. It always goes wrong when we come to the dessert. Mm. Always. How, just briefly, how did they turn you into a giant blueberry? It was done in two phases. First, they laid me down when I first arrived on a big white piece of paper with my arms up and my legs apart. And they drew, like, you draw around your hand, you know? Mm-hmm. So they drew my figure. Then they took a gigantic styrofoam ball and cut my figure into it. And so when I first start blowing up, it's a big rubber suit. Mm. Then you can see it changes into a hard ball. That's that styrofoam ball. I was in that ball, unable to move. Anything except my hands and my head for nine and a half hours. Oh, Lord. Um, They have a 30-minute lunch period on movie sets, and everyone's headed to the commissary, and I can't. It took them an hour and a half to get me in the suit, into the ball. So they weren't going to take me out. So the director says, Han, come on over here, get a chair, and roll her every five minutes. So I would hang with my head down and drink some of the milkshake. And then he'd roll me and I'd hang with my head back. And the guy didn't speak one word of English. It was the most weirdest experience ever. When they first put me in the ball, I fell over because I was top heavy. So they took me out and they put a cinder block in between my feet. So all day long, that pulled down particularly on my right arm and shoulder. And when they got me out of the ball, I had pins and needles in that arm for oh, a week or so. Violet, what are you doing now? You're blowing up. I feel funny. I'm not surprised. What's happening? You're blowing up like a balloon. Like a blueberry. Actress Denise Nickerson speaking with me in 2016. She played Violet Beauregard in the classic film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Nickerson died in September in Colorado at age 62. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look 
And you'll see into your imagination We'll begin with a spin Traveling in the world of my creation What we'll see will defy explanation If you want to view paradise Simply look around and view it Anything you want to do it Want to change the world There's nothing to it Snowboarding is big, so it's kind of fun to think that the snowboard started out as a backyard toy called the Snurfer. It was invented by a man named Sherman Poppin, who died in July at age 89. His daughter, Wendy Poppin, lives in Fort Collins, and she shared the story of its creation with us. The Snurfer was a necessity. It was that we needed to invent that on that Christmas day in 1965. My mother was pregnant with my youngest sister, Julie, and my mom was having some complications with the pregnancy. It was Christmas Day. We opened all our our presents, ate all the candy canes, and were pretty much bouncing off the walls. We lived in a little cottage on Lake Michigan, and my mom um, told my dad, get these kids out of the house. They're driving me crazy. So he did what any... <laughs> What any good husband would do, bundles, bundled us all up and threw us out the back door. And he came out with us and we started playing on this little sand dune behind our house because it had snowed a lot. And we didn't really have snow toys. And my dad kept wanting to, we had a saucer and he tried to stand on that, which didn't work very well. And then we tried a sled, but the sled runners went through the snow to the sand. And he tried all kinds of things to slide around. Then he went to the garage and pulled out one of my tiny skis with the Cubco bindings and tried to slide down that sand dune on that, but his big feet hung off. So he went back into the shed and nailed my two favorite skis together um, at the tip and the tail with a little piece of wood and slid down the hill on that. And it slid really fine. It was fun. So we played with it, played with it. And I remember my mom leaning out the back door of the cottage saying, you should call that a snurfer. Wendy Poppin lives in Fort Collins. Her dad, Sherman Poppin, invented the snurfer, the predecessor to the snowboard. He died in July at age 89. And finally today, a world-class musician who lived in Colorado for a time passed away this year as well. He's been described as explosive, a force of nature, wild and brilliant, even volatile. But when asked how he'd like to be remembered, Ginger Baker answered with one word, drummer. station 
Ginger Baker, the legendary drummer best known for his work with rock heavyweights Cream and Blind Faith, died October 6th in his native England. He was 80. His technique and offstage reputation epitomized the intensity of rock and roll, but he always considered himself a jazz musician. In 1994, he formed the Ginger Baker Trio with bassist Charlie Hayden and guitarist Bill Frizzell, who refers to that initial meeting as a sort of arranged marriage. I just remember that first day going into the studio and Ginger's in there setting up his drums and smoking a cigarette. And I just walk in and I'm thinking, oh God, what am I going to, you know, this is weird. I have to, I just walk up to him and, hi Ginger, I'm Bill, I'm the guitar player. And he sort of kind of acknowledged me, you know, but he was like, he didn't hug me or anything. You know, it was just sort of, it didn't help my uncertainty. But as soon as we started to play, this big smile came out on his face, you know, and and it was, we were just having a conversation with the music. Frizzell told us that studio experience with Baker brought everything full circle, having first seen the drummer at a Cream concert in Denver in 1969. Frizzell had just graduated East High School and was dreaming of a music career. When I was at that Cream concert, if you had told me that someday you'd be calling me to talk about my experiences playing with Ginger Baker, I would have said, you gotta be kidding me, you know? Sometimes I wonder if I am still dreaming. Baker called Colorado home for most of the 90s, living on a ranch near Parker, where he kept horses and pursued his love of polo. He even founded the Mile High Polo Club, which worked to make the elite sport more accessible. In a story from 1995, Baker told CPR News that it's mainly in the U.S. Polo is a sport for the wealthy. In England, Polo is a very healthy situation. There's lots of people going to watch polo in England. The internationals are 20,000 plus crowd every year. And here it's, people don't go. And what's more, it seems to me that the majority of the players don't want the people to go anyway. Baker also shared a few polo pointers. Sit tight on the halls, watch the ball, but don't necessarily follow the ball. If you see someone on your side going to hit the ball, go to where he's going to hit the ball too. As part of the Mile High Polo Club, whose board included gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson, Baker would stage post-match jam sessions in which he invited players from the local jazz scene, like cornetist Ron Miles. Those opportunities that we had to play after the polo matches were really quite a cultural awakening for a lot of us who didn't grow up around the polo scene. So Ginger would play a polo match and then he would come over in his gear and sit down on the drums and then we would play some music. These musical relationships carried over into the studio when it came time for Baker to recruit players for his 1999 album, Coward of the County.
someone who was very important to our scene here, someone who had gained international recognition, who told the world that there were outstanding musicians here in Colorado. And Ginger really, I think, fought to make sure that Colorado musicians were represented on that record, too. He could have certainly done it with outstanding New York musicians, uh, but he really believed in us, and that was important, because then we had extra belief in ourselves. So God bless Ginger Baker. Cornetist Ron Miles remembering the drummer and one-time Coloradan Ginger Baker. The music icon died in October at age 80. And that is our final show of 2019. I'll be with you in 2020. This is Ryan Warner and Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you.